The word of God is good and powerful and true. Through its proclamation, God works to open our eyes to his perfect will and truth. So may God continue to bless the preaching of his holy word today. If you are joining us for the first time, you are joining us at the end of a series of Ecclesiastes. Uh, We have been taking the summer to work through the book of Ecclesiastes, and today is our last sermon in Ecclesiastes. And I know everybody is sorely disappointed about that, but it's been a fun journey. Uh, Ecclesiastes has been a, uh, a challenging book for each one of us. Right? Hopefully you've been challenged by the preacher's words, his admonition. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity, says the preacher. It's a heavy thing to live with day in and day out. And yet today we come to the end of the matter. Uh, we come to the end of the chapter in the last few verses of Ecclesiastes. So, if you haven't already, turn to chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 14. Chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Again, chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote those words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd, my son. Be aware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing whether good or evil. May God continue to bless the preaching and hearing of his words. You may be seated. I know it's been a little while, but if you can remember back, way back to the beginning of the summer, when we opened the book of Ecclesiastes, print, print, Trent, rather, Trent preached on, Uh, Ecclesiastes 1 through 11. And if you remember Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verses 1 through 11, you might remember uh, that a editor or someone other than the main author or the main voice throughout the book introduces us to a character or to an individual known as the preacher. This is an anonymous editor. And now here at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, we're going to run once again into this editor. He opens the book of Ecclesiastes and he is also going to close the book. He opens the book by summarizing the arguments of the preacher, the main argument of the preacher. Now here at the close of the book, 
the editor reappears to offer a closing summary, or as some scholars put it, an epilogue to the book. The editor appears to offer a, a closing remarks to summarize all that the preacher has said. In verse 13, we see the summative conclusion offered by the editor. He says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. It's from this verse that I want to draw our proposition as well as all of our points. And the reason I want to do that is because Really, the editor is bringing back and highlighting, he's not saying something new, but rather he's highlighting something that the, the preacher has been saying all throughout Ecclesiastes. There's one part I want to pick apart and draw your attention to first because it's the title that uh, I chose for the sermon, which may seem a little odd. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't the most intuitive one, but I want to I explain how I got there. So look again at verse 13. He says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. And then you have the statement, For this is the whole duty of man. What's interesting about this is in the Hebrew, it's actually a lot shorter than that. In Hebrew, it says something to the effect of, And this is all Adam. This is all humanity. Of course, you know, uh, because you are a student of the Bible, that Adam is not just the name, personal name, of the first human in, uh, in the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2, but it also is the Hebrew term, or one of the Hebrew terms, for humanity. And that is the exact term that's used here and all the way back in chapter 2, verse 3, that the preacher introduces. He is conveying to us that which man or Adam does under the sun, what humanity does under the sun. What is the point of our toiling under the sun? That is what the preacher is seeking to unpack in the book of Ecclesiastes. What is our place? What is our purpose? So, my proposition then comes from this point. How are we to live as holy human? As holy human. The idea being here, as we've talked through the book of Ecclesiastes, we've, we've, I've made allusions back again and again to the book of uh, Genesis. Because right in the, the preacher's mind, very astute and very closely to his writing of Ecclesiastes, he has the book of Genesis open. Or at least has a strong familiarity with it. And all along, we've talked about this phrase that shows up repeatedly and exclusively in the book of Ecclesiastes, life under the sun. Well, he's talking about life east of Eden, life in exile from Eden, a life of fallenness that marks our existence. It's our experience on a daily basis. But we weren't created to dwell in the fall. That wasn't what we were meant for, and we all know it. We long for it. It says, Solomon says, God has put eternity into the hearts of man. We, we, we long for permanence, for something that will last, that will, that will continue on. And yet we're frustrated daily because what we do 
never lasts. It's hevel. We seek permanence, but permanence slips through our fingers. But that's not the way it was meant to be. The way it was meant to be was what we see back with Adam in the garden. Where Adam was whole and Adam was whole in the garden in union with God. Uninterrupted, undisturbed relationship, uh, encumbered relationship with God. He had intimacy with God. That's what humanity was created for. And yet, man lost that shortly after. But man was whole in the garden. And so, the preacher is considering, what is it for a man to be whole? What is the whole of man? What is the whole duty of man? What is the purpose of man? And that's what the uh, editor here is going to be summarizing. So, this might seem like a strange proposition, but Solomon's words back in chapter 2, verse 3... The grand experiment that Solomon was uh, going to embark on or had embarked on on his own. It actually is the reason he wrote this book. And he, he wrote so that he could see what was good for the children of man or humanity or Adam. For the sons of Adam to do under heaven. The phrase good for the children of man to do under heaven as we already pointed out, is a curious phrase. It's an unusual phrase. And yet it appears here in chapter 3 and then back where we're at in chapter 12. So in the garden, Adam was whole. Exiled from the garden, the image of God, although it still exists, has become tainted in that we no longer are unbroken, unhindered, uninhibited, intimate relationship with God. The purpose of humanity was union with God, intimacy with God, as his image bearers, to work from this relationship. To understand a little bit of this, we need to understand uh, the idea of, of what it means to be uh, what, 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 it, what, what it means to be the essence of something. Uh, today, when we look at something and we seek to describe something, we often talk about what it is made of, right? In antiquity, when you were describing the essence of something, you didn't consider it in terms of what it was made of, but you considered it in terms of what function did it fulfill? What was its purpose? How did it fit in the big scheme of things? That makes sense because in a primarily agricultural setting, you have the sun that rises and the sun that sets. You have seasons that continually go around. And you know in the springtime, that is a time for planting. In the summertime, that is a time for cultivating and growing. In the fall, that is a time for harvest. You know when things are supposed to work. And wisdom is understanding how things fit properly, rightly, into the system of the world. So it was primarily a functional view of reality. We see this in creation. The creation narrative talks about God creating the heavens and the earth. And he creates on the days of creation. We've talked about this before. On the days of creation, God creates. He forms in the heavens. He forms light in the heavens. And then he fills it with the luminaries like the sun and the moon and the stars. And they fit the function 
that's set for them to determine days and seasons and months, right? The world in antiquity is governed by how does it function. So the question then becomes, what is the function of man? Genesis 1 tells us the function of man is to bear God's image and to bear it rightly, to reflect his image, to steward God's glory through his creation, to have dominion, to exercise God's glory over his creation, to be fruitful and to multiply. But at the fall, all of that changes because man is exiled and no longer is an unbroken, unhindered, uninhibited relationship, no longer has union with God, but is in opposition to God. We see this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. God commands the man, In the day you eat of the tree, of the fruit of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Turn the page, and what do we find? The day they eat of it, there is a death that is inaugurated. They're kicked out of the garden. They're removed from the presence of God. They're, they're the, the union that they had, the unrestricted union humanity had with God is severed. And now humanity is in opposition to God. Many scholars refer to Genesis 3 as the fall. I think more fitting is understanding it as the rebellion. It is the time where we didn't just make a mistake, but we stood up in opposition to God, challenged his authority as God, and claimed to be God ourselves. Back to the book of Ecclesiastes. The author of Ecclesiastes is asking, what is the function of man outside of Eden? What is his purpose what does it mean to be human and to fit in a world that God has created, that God has ordered, that God created in his wisdom, that all things fit together but have become tainted and broken because of our sin? How does man fit? Well, the editor summarizes for us by revisiting Solomon's logic from chapter 2, verse 3. Uh, if you look at verse 13... Again, in chapter 12, verse 13, it says, For this is the whole duty of man. And again, in Hebrew, this reads literally, For this is the whole of Adam. In other words, he's saying, At the end of the matter, of which Solomon has been arguing throughout the entire book of Ecclesiastes, the function of humanity, the purpose of humanity under the sun, is to hear God, to hear God, to fear God, and to obey God, right? Chapter, or chapter 12, verse 13. To hear God, to fear God, and to obey God. As one commentator noted, to obey God is to be truly human. Humanity sought to become like God in disobeying him, but instead they lost the one thing that made them truly human. Therefore, to be wholly human under the sun, as we, were, as we were made to be, is to listen to God. Listen to God. To hear what God is saying on his own terms. To listen to God. To fear God. 
and to obey God's commands. These are our three points that we're going to be looking at successively. So let's start with our first one. My first point, we must hear God. Look back at verse 13 again. The editor is summing up, uh, summing it all up. He says, here is the end of the matter. Then he leads with the disclaimer. He says, all has been heard. All has been heard. Here's the end of the matter. I'm going to sum up everything for you. All has been heard. What is he talking about? It might be easy to overlook this first point of his final summary. But this is an important point for us to see. So important, in fact, that the, the editor here has spent the last four verses of chapter, or chapter 12, verses 9 through 14, the last four verses trying to convince us of this very point. Look back at verses 9 and 10. The editor says, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The editor is going to great lengths to prove or approve, to compel his readers to receive and accept the preacher's words, not just as authoritative, as though the preacher's words are authoritative among a a collection of wise sayings. So not to accept it authoritative generally, but he's he's seeking to convince his audience, his readers, to accept the, the preacher's words as the authoritative statement on the matter at hand. He is saying among all the wise and taking into consideration all the wisdom of the wise, the preacher has studied, he has weighed, and he has arranged all the material on the subject at hand. And the preacher, who we know is Solomon, the wisest man in Israel, has produced and compiled and concluded and that result of his compilation his, his arranging, his studying, is the book of Ecclesiastes. From a human perspective, the editor is making a case that Solomon's argument, as preserved for us in the book of Ecclesiastes, is the best, most well thought out, and most eloquently presented argument on the matter. He begins with acknowledging Solomon's wisdom. He says, besides being wise... Well, in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29, we're told God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and a breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. A little later in chapter 4, we learn that the people of all the nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And all the kings of the earth sought to hear of his wisdom. Again, in chapter, uh, or 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 24, we read, And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. The editor points out that Solomon was not just clever in his wisdom, but he was studious and intentional and careful. He writes, The preacher also taught the people knowledge. By weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. Solomon was gifted, 
right? He was gifted with wisdom. We're told in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 12, that the Lord literally gave Solomon unmatched wisdom. Unmatched wisdom. Man, I, I remember many years ago I prayed. Maybe, maybe in the back of my mind, beyond my, my uh, forefront of my conscience, I prayed, Lord, give me humility. And uh, my thought was, I will come with my empty cup of humility and the Lord will fill it. And I'll say, thank you. That's not exactly how that happened, right? What it turns out is the Lord took my cup of pride, smashed it, and then gave me some humility because that's all that was left over, <laughs> right? I, was, I would love to receive wisdom as Solomon received wisdom. The Lord poured out wisdom on Solomon. It was a gift that he gave Solomon. Solomon, however, was not lazy with his gift. Have you ever met someone that uh, is just gifted? I had a friend, hopefully he never hears this. My friend was Mark Booker. Mark Booker. I used his full name, so now I'm committed. Uh, Mark Booker was one of the most popular kids in school, and he was my friend. Uh, Mark Booker was in all AP classes in high school. Mark Booker was our star all-state athlete in pretty much anything he did. Even if they had ping pong and he'd never played before, Mark would be all-state in ping pong. He set school records. Uh, Mark Booker was also extremely good-looking. Mark Booker also had a six-pack, maybe a nine-pack. I never checked for sure. Mark Booker had it all, and he was just nice. And he was my friend, and I hated him for it. <laughs> Because all that Mark Booker was, I was not. Micah worked his tail off to be average. Micah was not popular. Micah was not exceptionally smart. He wasn't even mediocrely, see? No more proof needed. <laughs> I had to work my tail off in sports to just be, eh, okay. And I would look at Mark and I'd say, man, Mark, you got everything. And uh, he didn't have to try. And that just irritated me, right? Here's the thing, though. How many people have you met that have natural gifts that you don't have? And you see them and they squander their gift because they don't apply themselves to hone it, to sharpen it, to increase it to multiply it. And you who do not have this gift stand back and you struggle and you labor and you, you, you toil just to be a hint of what they're doing when they're not even trying. Solomon was not like this. Solomon knew he had a gift and he received it as a gift, not by his own knowledge or by his own skill, but because he received it as a gift from the Lord and he applied himself. He studied, he considered, he arranged carefully. He applied himself to use his gift and he did so with excellence. That's why we have many books in scripture written by Solomon. Because Solomon used his God-given gift to accomplish God-given tasks to the fullest of his ability. 
Verse 10 says, the preacher sought to find words of delight. And uprightly, he wrote words of truth. Not only was Solomon careful in his study to think very carefully through matters which he wrote, but he sought to find words that were delightful. That is, he crafted his words so that how he said what he said was just as important as the content of what he said. Yet, not only did Solomon curate his words carefully so that they were not only understandable, but he did so that they were memorable. Uh, It's likely that at some point in your life, you have found a favorite proverb. Chances are that proverb probably comes from Solomon, and it's probably memorable because Solomon honed his gift and practiced his gift with excellence. He also wrote words with utmost integrity, the text tells us. In other words, his aim was not simply to write clever words and expound a new philosophy, but he was after that which is beyond a single man. Words of truth. Not not words of his truth, but words of truth. These are words a man does not contrive, but rather Ideas one discovers, they have always existed because words of truth come from the author of truth. And Solomon sought those words, sought that wisdom. The editor is going to great lengths to convince us that the words of the preachers contained, the words of the preacher contained within the book of Ecclesiastes are trustworthy because they come from Solomon, the preacher, who is not only wise, not only gifted, not only careful and diligent laborer of his craft of communication and wisdom, but he's also upright. But our editor goes even further. Look at verse 11. He says, the words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. The wisdom Solomon has already established uh, in this book, Solomon gives his credentials in chapter 1, verse 16, claiming, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, And my heart has a great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Sounds like Solomon's just boasting. But he's not boasting. Rather, he's giving his qualifications so that we can trust his conclusion. He says, look, I've done this. I've I've invested my life in this. I've sought experiences, experiences you and I could never pursue. We'd never have the means to do it. He says, I've done it for you. Trust me. I know what I'm talking about. You don't have to try to reproduce this experiment because I know, I know, I know I'm wise, but I'm using my wisdom for your sake so that you don't have to dabble in my folly. Then look back at chapter 12, verse 9. The editor assumes Solomon's wisdom. He assumes Solomon's wisdom. Uh, Now here in verse 11, he's saying the words of the wise are actually given by one shepherd. Most commentators understand this as a reference, uh, this reference of one shepherd, shepherd to be referring to God, who is often metaphorically referred to as a shepherd. For example, Psalm 23 or Psalm 80 or Isaiah 40. If this is indeed the case, if one shepherd is referring to 
Yahweh, then our editor is saying the words of the preacher throughout the book of Ecclesiastes are trustworthy not simply because of the wisdom, diligence, skill of Solomon as a renowned wise man, but because they are the very words of God. Solomon sought the true words. He sought the words of God. And that is what he has written down. And the editor says and affirms, these are actually words of the one shepherd. The one shepherd who, from whom all wisdom comes. And that is what we have in the book of Ecclesiastes. One scholar, Michael Eaton, uh, says... He reflects, although the preacher's words are the result of his own reflection, at the same time they come, across, they come from God. There is here, therefore, the doctrine of inspiration. The preacher, or his editor, is conscious of his own activity. Verse 10. With regard both to the form, how it is written, as well as the content of his work. Yet he contends that the finished product is the very word of God as well as the word of man. Solomon wrote scripture, and I think he even knew he was doing that. The editor goes to great lengths to commend the work of the preacher, and we see why the words of the preacher are the very words of God. In the garden, God spoke to humanity. God said, in the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Yet, when that day came, Adam and Eve didn't listen to the word of God. But they listened to another voice. We live in a world where there are many voices and much noise, all competing for our attention. But you were made for one voice. You were made to listen to one voice above all other voices. You were made to hear him, to listen to him, to revel in his words and receive them deep within you. Even in the garden, God didn't cease speaking to us. After the fall, God didn't cease speaking to his humanity, his image bearers. He has given us his word and we can listen to him now. God has preserved his word for us so that we can still listen to his voice. After the fall, we turned our backs on the voice of God, but he still pursued us and he still gave of himself to us through his word and he still preserved his word, his voice to us so that we might know him on his terms, so that we don't have to speculate about who God might be. We don't get to invent who God is because he's told us, and he's made it clear, and he's given it to us, and he's preserved it for us. Do you listen to the voice of God? To be truly human, to be what you and I were created to be, we must first open, be open to hear God's word and to receive it. Are you listening to God's word? Are you hearing from him on his terms? I once had a professor who challenged all of us as Bible college students, young Bible, ambitious, excited Bible college students. He said, 
and this was a challenge, are you spending more time reading about God's Word than you are reading His Word? Ouch. Man, it's actually easier to read about God's Word, to talk about God's Word, to listen to people speculate, conjecture, theologize about God's Word than it is to read His Word. Because they're not infinite. They're not true wisdom. It's easier to listen to each other talk than to humble ourselves before the very Word of God. Are you spending time actually hearing from God himself in his word? Don't get me wrong. There are a lot of good podcasts, right? We're in a po- most of you. If you are under the age of 30, you're in what now uh, sociologists are calling a post-literate generation, right? You're post-literate, meaning not that you can't read. You can, you can probably read. <laughs> Emojis, right? That's what... <laughs> Just kidding, that was not meant as an insult. Um, post-literate simply means that most of your information and the way you receive information about the world is not primarily through reading. You don't pick up the newspaper, right? You, you're not reading magazines and necessarily books. And that's not saying you're, you're not doing that. It says most of your information you're receiving through video, YouTube, right? Or other, I don't know what other ones are out there, but other ones... Or things like podcasts, right? You're receiving your information in a very passive form. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of good podcasts out there. I have benefited richly from podcasts. There's a lot of podcasts that even teach you about the Bible. But listen, there are also a lot of not-so-good podcasts. The question is, how do you know? How do you know? How are you going to be able to discern what is good and what is not good if you're never feasting on God's word for yourself? Don't trust what other people say. Feast on his word. Treasure his word for yourself. And then, yes, listen, but listen with wisdom. Look at verse 12. It says, My son, beware, the editor says, beware of anything beyond these. That is, the wise wise words of the preacher, which is the very words of God. He says, of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness to the flesh. What is he saying? He's warning us that there are a lot of novel ideas, clever notions, profound philosophies, and convincing theories in the world. But he is giving us A stern warning not to go beyond the word of God as our supreme authority. Right? Where do you get life from? Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds of the mouth of God. Are you anorexic? Do you struggle with feasting on the word of God? I know I do. It's hard. It's hard. But it's worthwhile. Because it endures forever. It's not hevel, in other words. You can be certain of this. God is the one who has made all things. God is the one who knows the purpose behind everything and everyone. 
Our best ideas apart from God are mere foolishness. Our starting place, just like it was in the garden, is that we must hear the word of God. However, it's not enough simply to hear the word of God. Even the first couple heard the word of God, but this was not enough when, they, when the deceitful serpent came. Therefore, we must go beyond simply hearing the word to fearing God. Look again at verse 13. He says, we must not only hear, but we must fear. We must fear God. Fearing God has been a recurrent theme throughout the argument of the preacher. The backbone of his argument is built on the idea, in fact, of fearing God. In chapters three, in chapter 3, 5, 7, and 8, the preacher calls us again and again and again to fear God. But what is meant by fearing God? I've had a number of conversations as a, uh, I was a Bible college professor for almost 20 years. And this was one of those questions that would appear again and again and again. What does it mean to fear God? What does it mean to fear God? Well, there are a couple of different ways to look at this. And I want to at least consider a couple of them. Um, it's helpful to understand. One way that I found helpful to understand this is looking at the Hebrew language. Um, I taught an uh, Old, Old Testament class, uh, and so you kind of get into the, some of the words. And just when you begin to read Scripture and you begin to read the Word, you don't have to know Hebrew to pick up on the fact that Hebrew is a very concrete language. They use a lot of similes and metaphors. Con to, to talk about concrete things, to talk about abstract ideas, right? Uh, and, and that runs throughout. The Lord is my horn. Well, that means he's your strength, right? This is one that always got my students excited. Uh, the, the term for God being long-suffering, enduring our stupidity over a long period of time. In Hebrew, it's that God has a long nose, God is long nosed, and that's good for us. The idea is when you get angry, you get flushed. Your capillaries begin to, capillaries are like blood, they begin to expand. If you've ever seen anybody get angry, veins start popping out on head and throat, right? Or neck, not throat. Uh, and what you'll notice is they start to turn red. And the idea is if you have a really long nose, it takes a long time for your nose to turn red from anger. God is long-suffering or long-nosed. An another one that's helpful to our idea of fearing God is the, the idea of uh, God's glory. Glory, what, what is glory? That's an abstract idea. So what does that equate in the Hebrew language? Uh, it, the Hebrew word most often used to talk about uh, glory is a word kavod, which also means heavy. It's a word to talk about something that is heavy. God, in other words, his glory, God is glorious. In other words, he's weighty. God is weighty. I find this is a helpful metaphor when thinking about in the context of fearing God. When one heavy object occupies the same space as another, a denser or heavier object, the heaviest or densest object will displace the lighter object, right? Uh, this is the principle uh, by which buoyancy op operates. An object will float when water is denser than that object. 
but take an iron stone and place it in a cup full of water and the weightiness, the glory of that iron stone will displace the glory of the water in the cup. It removes it. It's too weighty for the water to exist in the same space. It outweighs it in glory. As this relates to God, the command throughout Scripture is to fear God, is to intentionally allow the weightiness of God's glory to displace other things in my life. Does God displace things in your life? Is he weighty enough that he displaces other affections in your life? But... Although this is a helpful place to start when talking about the glory or talking about the fear of the Lord, uh, we must not sanitize this concept of fearing the Lord too quickly. Before we let ourselves off the hook, uh, we, we must keep in mind that as we read Scripture, because we must hear from God, as we actually read and encounter Scripture, what we find is this, that every person who has an encounter with the living God it leaves them stricken with dread or on their face. God's glory is so weighty, it's terrifying. Consider Moses' encounter at the burning bush. He doesn't even see Yahweh there. Moses hid his face and he was afraid to look at God. Or Yahweh's word to Moses in Exodus 33.20. He says, uh, <clears throat> Yahweh says, You cannot see my face face for man shall not see me and live I'm too weighty for you I will crush you under the weight of my glory Gideon in Judges 6.22 meets the angel of Yahweh often uh, understood as a theophany of Yahweh himself a, a physical manifestation of, of God and he cries out in dread Similarly, Samson's parents encounter the angel of Yahweh in fear for their very lives. Manoah says, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. When Yahweh shows up to answer Job, he respi uh, Job responds, responds, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Isaiah cries out, woe is me, I'm lost. When sinners encounter God's infinite holiness, overwhelming dread is certainly appropriate. Well, why? Look at verse 14. For God, look at verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Whew, that's, that's heavy. God is going to bring everything in judgment. Uh, an illustration I'd use in class is if I had a white object, say a pencil, and I held it up to you and you looked at it right here, you would say it's white. But if I held it up to the light and you looked at it, you would say, well, it's not, it's not as white as it was. It looks more gray or dark. If I held it up to the sunlight, what color would it look to you then? Or what tone would it look? It would look black. The greater the brilliance of the object it's compared to, doesn't matter how white it looks to us, doesn't matter how white it actually is. When you compare it to something other than itself, it is no longer white, it is black. God is infinitely holy. Too often we take our own sin and we say, well, it's not that bad. 
Who are you comparing it with? I compare my sin with others. I'm not as bad as them. I've never murdered anyone, right? I'm not, I'm not that bad. But you've got to understand, God is not like us. He is not like us. He is completely other in this regard. God, in Isaiah, is said to be holy, holy, holy. In Hebrew, if you want to emphasize something, you just add another word of it. So God is not just supremely holy, he is holy, holy, holy. In other words, God's holiness, you can't measure it. You can't come to the end of it. That's really good news and also really bad news. Because your white lie compared to infinite holiness makes it blacker than the darkest night. Not only is God holy, but God lives forever, right? In the beginning, God. God is before all things and God is after all things. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. God goes on forever. So not only is God's uh, holiness immeasurable, but he goes on forever. That's good news and bad news because that means our sin stands before him forever. And it's a converse relationship. The holier God is, the more sinful your sin looks to him. This is why we believe in the doctrine of hell. Not because we want to, but because God is who he says he is in his word and he's true. And if that's true, we're in a lot of trouble because he's going to judge every deed, even the secret ones, even the ones you've never told anybody that you did alone, quietly, didn't think anybody was looking, watching. He's going to judge. And his judgment is sure, and it's in relationship to his holiness. This leads us to my third and final point. We must obey God. Finally, we're told we must keep his commands. It is helpful to note the order of these points. First, hear God. Then, when we have encountered God on his own terms, we fear him because we behold him for who he truly is. We invite his weightiness to displace all other fears and affections. It is from this place of worship that we act. And only from this place of worship that we act. Again, commentator Eaton, Michael Eaton, writes and rightly observes, conduct derives from worship. That is true for believers and unbelievers. Conduct derives from worship. A knowledge of God leads to an obedience, not vice versa. You can't mix those up. A knowledge of God leads to obedience. You can't do acts of obedience to lead you to a knowledge of God. Because that is called self-righteousness. And God hates self-righteousness. When you try to tell God who he is and what you do in relationship to him, he says, you're not God. You don't get to say that. You have to come to me on my own terms. Don't believe me? Ask Nadab and Abihu. 
Sidney Gradanus, another scholar, he agrees. He writes, the attitude of fearing God leads to the action of keeping his commandments. The attitude of fearing God leads to the action of keeping his commandments. We demonstrate that we fear God by keeping his commandments. If we really stand in awe of God, we will seek to keep his commandments. If we acknowledge God as our king, we will naturally seek to do what he says. Moses already tethered fearing God with keeping his commandments back in Deuteronomy, way before the editor or Solomon. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, he writes, And now... Israel, right? So the context here. This isn't the first generation that's come out of Egypt. They all died away. This is the, they, they were the unfaithful generation. Remember Kadesh Barnea? They refused to enter the land because they were afraid. They feared the people. And God says, okay, I'll give you what you want. You feared the people because your sons and daughters might perish. Here's what's going to happen. You're not going to enter the land. And the very ones you thought would perish in the land, your sons and daughters, they're the ones that are going to inherit the land. And for 40 years, Israel wanders in the wilderness until that generation dies off. Now we have a new generation with Joshua at the helm. He crosses the Red Sea. Or nope, crosses the Jordan, like crossing the Red Sea. He's the new Moses. Enters unto the other side. That's what is about ready to happen. So Moses is now giving... The law and the covenant, this is called the Palestinian covenant, which is a nut part two of the Mosaic covenant. He's giving the covenant now, the Palestinian covenant, to the new generation. Listen to what he says. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord, to walk in all of his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. And to keep his commandments and statutes, to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today, isn't it for your good? The problem is, because of the fall, because of Adam's sin, we have inherited a disease. We all have become subhuman, less than what we were created to be. In the garden, in Adam, we chose to love a lie that we could be God. And now we fear anything that threatens that temptation. Everyone falls short. No one can keep God's law because fundamentally we have hardened hearts. Hearts that have turned away from God. Hearts that are in rebellion to God. Even Moses, Moses knew this. Listen to the rest of Deuteronomy chapter 10. This is the rest of the verses here. Let me read 12 and 13 again. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to uh, but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. Verse 13, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today, isn't it for your good? Behold, to the Lord your God belongs heaven and, uh, belongs heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord... Although he owns all things, he has set his affection, his heart, in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples are to this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and no longer be stubborn. 
Israel was not able to keep God's commandments. Neither was Solomon. Many believe this editor of the end of uh, the epilogue of, of, Deut- or of uh, Ecclesiastes 12, many believe this editor was writing to a post-exile audience, right? So not writing in the time of Solomon, but actually writing to people that had been put into exile because of their disobedience for not listening and obeying God, for not fearing God. They were exiled to Babylon, an ungodly nation God used as an instrument of his righteousness to bring judgment on his people for not listening and obeying. That's how sovereign God is. And he brought them out of the land. And now, after 70 years, they're coming back into the land. And many scholars think this editor is writing his audiences, these people that are returning from the exile. From captivity in Babylon to Jerusalem. If this is the case, then he's warning his audience to fear God and keep his commandments so as not to suffer the fate of their forefathers who were exiled because of their rebellion and disobedience for not fearing the Lord. But you and I know, you and I know the returned exiles fared no better than their parents. What was needed was a whole new man. But, the one, but one might ask, what was the purpose of the law then? If, if God knew we couldn't keep his commandments, then why give us the law? Thankfully, the Apostle Paul answers this very question in Galatians 3. He says, why the law? It was added because of transgression until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. Jesus Christ came born of a virgin, born of God, so that, we might, so that he might be the second to Adam, yet without sin. Jesus is the whole man we were always meant to be. He came as a perfect word of God, truly God, truly man. Jesus alone perfectly listened to the Father. In John 14, 10 and, and 24, Jesus says, You do not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. The words that you hear, is, uh, the words you hear are not mine, but they're the Father's who sent me. Jesus listened to the Father perfectly. He listened to the Father. Jesus perfectly loved the Father by fearing, revering him alone. 
John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, he didn't entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus didn't entrust himself to others. He didn't fear others. In the garden, Jesus lays down his life in perfect obedience to the Father. Not my will be done, but yours. If at all possible, says the man Jesus, if at all possible, I know what's coming, but if at all possible, take this cup from me. I don't want to do this. It's too much. But I yield because I fear you, because I love you, because I know you. I listen to your voice, and therefore I can walk in obedience. Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father even unto death. Jesus was the whole man we were always meant to be. But in his resurrection, but wait, there's more. In his resurrection, Jesus was raised a new man, a new Adam, inaugurating a new lineage through faith so that we can become sons and daughters of God in Christ who is our head. In other words, Jesus comes as the second Adam and he takes Genesis 2.17 and the day you eat of it, it was in that you will surely die. That was inaugurated in Genesis 3. It was consummated at the cross. And the sin and judgment that you and I can't bear was born, the weighty judgment of God was born on the back of Christ. The only one who could bear it. The only one who is equally holy. Holy, holy. Who's equally eternal. Truly God, truly man. And he bore what we could not. And then he died. And he took it to the grave. And then three days later he rose again. But he rose again as a new man. In a new body. With a new humanity. And he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And by faith, you can be a child of God. You can participate in the new Adam, in his lineage, in his humanity. Because forever, Jesus is the God-man. When he resurrected, his resurrection was as a man and God. And forever he has united humanity in divinity in himself. And that's good news for us. Because we can become partakers of the divine nature through Jesus' humanity that's forever wedded with his divinity. Amen? If you're still trying to please God by keeping his commands in the strength of your flesh, no, and I don't say this lightly or glibly, your condemnation remains. You still are going to stand before a holy God. And you're still going to have to give account for everything. And your good deeds are as filthy rags. You have nothing to offer. Nothing. But there's hope. If in faith you are united to the finished work of Christ, you can receive His new life through the circumcision of your heart by the very Spirit of God that is implanted in you. 
You receive his inheritance. His perfect righteousness is imputed to you. If you haven't entrusted yourself to Christ, do so now. Why wait? Do so now. Here's your only hope in life and death. And the only way to escape the hevel of this world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true. Because your word comes from you. And Lord, you are true. And Lord, you have given through your word. You have given us yourself. You have laid bare your heart. And that is most clearly seen in your word made flesh. Lord, you have held nothing back. You cannot love us more than you have loved us in Christ. So help us, Lord. Because it's not your affections that's the problem that we face. God, help us. Help us to love you because you have first loved us. God, build in us a holy hunger for your holiness, for your righteousness, for your purity. Lord, that we might fear you, but not as the world fears. That we might fear you as the awesome God who we have been reconciled to, and that is unimaginable. It goes beyond what we could contrive on our own. That an infinite, immeasurable, holy God would condescend to pursue us and to provide a way for us to draw near to Him. Lord, it's cost you everything. It's cost you everything. So, Lord, Give us the strength, give us the humility, give us the boldness to live from a place of fearing you, from loving you, and walking in obedience to you. Jesus, as you said, all the law and the prophets are summed up in this. To love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, God, would you increase our obedience in that? Would you increase our affections that we might walk in obedience? And the second is like it, to love our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, may we use other people to fall more desperately in love with you. For your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.